Acts chapter 4, verse 27. For of a truth against thy holy child, Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. The believers of this early church were gathered together in corporate prayer as a result of the persecution in the temple of uh, Peter and John. They went up to the temple to pray. They saw a paralytic man, healed him. While everyone glorified God and marveled at that great miracle that was done, Peter and John used that as a springboard to preach Jesus Christ as being God's Messiah, whom the Jews crucified. And then God raised him from the dead. And it's through that name that that paralytic man was made whole. And while preaching and doing this, the leaders of Jerusalem took note of that. And those that were in the temple, the temple guards and the chief of the temple, uh, they saw that. And so they took Peter and John into custody and brought him before the Sanhedrin and to try to, to intimidate them with all those uh, men, those elders of Israel there, and to intimidate them into keeping their mouths shut. And they commanded them to preach no more in that name, sent them out of there. And so what did they do? They gathered together with the church and they prayed. The early church believed in the priority and the power of corporate prayer. They knew that they had to talk to God, that there was one who was uh, overall. They, they could go over the heads of the Sanhedrin and go to one that outranked them <laughs> and ask for his help. And they're just crying out to God and they're saying, God, they are against your holy child, Jesus. And they weren't the only ones uh, who have ever been against this holy child, Jesus, on down through history. You'll find some cults that are against the idea of God having a son who is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. You also find that uh, there are those uh, Eastern uh, mystical religions who believe that Jesus was a good teacher but not the Son of God. Uh, and then also the Muslims, they say that if you believe Jesus was God's son or that God had a son, then you're an infidel worthy of death. Um, and also today, modern Bible translate, translators are against God's holy child, Jesus, at least in their translation in this passage. In verse 27, they changed child, and in verse 30, child there, they changed that to holy servant. Even the New King James Version will do this. Somebody says, well, just get the New King James Version. Why do you still preach from the old King James Version. The, the New King James is just an updated version. It just doesn't have all the these and the thous and, and the ETH endings on the end of words and things like that. And instead of ye, it'll say you. And they say it's just an updated version. Really? Is that all it is? Is that true? Is, has someone ever told you that? And uh, you just thought, well, okay, that, that must be true. Someone else says uh, you can just use whatever version you prefer. ESV, NIV, the NASB, uh, 
the King James Version, New King James Version, uh, they're all the same. Use the translation that you prefer. Is that true? Uh, friends, I find out that uh, in my studies that that's not true. This is one of those examples. The word child and the word servant, two different things. The word translated child here is paideia. You see, and that word, the root of it, is defined in a lexicon as child. It's translated that way 13 times in the New Testament. Not only that, but in the context, they're quoting Psalm 2, and God's servant in Psalm 2 is David. In Psalm 2, verse 7, Jesus is God's son, you see. They make another translation there. They change the words of God, and they make an error in your Bible. If you want a Bible that you can trust, you get yourself an authorized King James Version of the Bible. Against thy holy child... Now, to change child to servant is an attack against the deity of Jesus Christ. It's just one of the many attacks in these newer Bibles. I don't believe that the translators want to attack the deity of Christ. What I believe is that Satan wants to attack the deity of Jesus Christ. And they're, they're, they're simply instruments in the devil's hands to pervert the living words of the living God. You see, they're not the same. You pick up any one of these newer versions and you'll find that they're different. It's not just an updating of archaic words. They're changing the words of God. When I realized that, I realized I'm either going to be honest about this thing and have to just discover the truth and, and follow the truth wherever it leads, or else I'm just going to have to be dishonest and forget that I've seen these things and ignore what I see to be clear differences between the versions today. So that's why I stick with my King James Bible. And if there is an archaic word in there, uh, in my reading, I'll just put a modern equivalent of that word out in the margin, but I won't change the Bible. If you listen to me teach and preach, you'll never hear me, by the grace of God, you'll never hear me correct or change the word of God. We, it's not necessary, and you'll lose cross-references, you'll lose truth there, and, uh, and I, I'd be afraid to do that, knowing what I know in the Bible about the warnings about changing God's words. Against thy holy child whom thou hast anointed. The word anointed, uh, that's the English word for the Hebrew Messiah, which means the anointed one, or the Greek Christ means the same thing, the anointed one. Whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. So both the Jews and the Gentiles were guilty before God. But the Jews were only guilty by proxy. 
of killing Jesus. Because they actually just put him into the hands of the Romans who could actually get the job done. The Romans were the ones who actually killed the Lord Jesus. And it was the Jews who did it by proxy. But they're both guilty before the Lord. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. But all they did was unwittingly fulfill the counsel of the Lord. That was determined before the foundation of the world that this would be done. And so they accomplished the will of God. That did not remove their guilt. That's what the apostles have been preaching so far. That you're guilty. You crucified your Messiah. You must repent. And then you'll have forgiveness of sins. Isn't it incredible though? How the the free will of man and the providence of God work together in the scriptures. And I can't figure that all out, and you can't figure it all out. Our, our job is just to believe it and to accept it. And now, verse 29, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. So notice what they prayed for. They prayed for boldness. They didn't pray, Lord, protect us from the persecution take the persecution away they said lord you you've seen it you've heard their threatenings but give us boldness to keep preaching no matter what i heard uh, an adrian rogers sermon today and uh, he was saying that you're either on the battlefield or you're in the harvest field every day of your life is one or the other you're either in a spiritual battle or else You're not feeling the battle, you're on the harvest field, and you're trying to tell people about Jesus, and to to plead with them to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, so they can be saved from the penalty of their sins, and have forgiveness and eternal life. You're on one or the other, and I wonder where you are today. Today, do you feel like you're on a battlefield, fighting against the old flesh, the old man, the old sin nature? fighting against the the wiles of the devil, maybe being, maybe there's uh, resistance, opposition against you from your family, from co-workers, from a a boss. Uh, Maybe there's distractions or you feel confused. God's not the author of confusion. Maybe you feel like you're on a battlefield, or you say, I I feel like I'm in the harvest field. I've been praying for a friend, and finally that friend has downloaded a a Bible app onto their phone, and they're reading the Bible, and they're asking me questions, and and, uh, I've been giving them my testimony, and I've been praying for years and years, and I can see how a little bit of the light is getting through into that darkened heart. And uh, maybe they're praying for the first time in their life, and And I'm just rejoicing that I can see God at work. And I'm trying to get him to a good Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. And uh, and you're in a harvest field. Maybe you've been passing out tracts. Maybe you've been witnessing and telling others your testimony and and, uh, leading others to Jesus Christ. One way or the other, 
It's the battlefield or it's the harvest field. And in either case, what do we need? We need boldness to speak God's word because it's through the word that people are born again. Verse 30, by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. So they're praying and asking God to accompany their words with these sign gifts. And they're praying that God would continue to use these great signs because they saw the benefit of that. When they were there in the temple, they were able to gather a crowd through this. And the Jews, as we've been learning, require these signs. And they're seeing the healing done and all of these things. And, and they're able to say, we're doing this in the name of God's holy child, Jesus. And when they prayed that God gave them the assurance that he had heard their prayer and answered their prayer because the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness, with boldness. And so this was earth-shaking power that came as God once again filled them with the Holy Ghost. And we've said that there's one baptism with the Holy Ghost and many fillings. And we need to pray as a church. You need to pray with your church wherever you serve and say, let's pray that God will fill us with the Holy Spirit. We, we read in the Bible that God will give his Holy Spirit to them that ask. Now, if you're saved, you've received the Holy Spirit. The moment that you trusted in Jesus Christ and accepted him as your Savior, Holy Spirit came in, took up residence with you, and you are sealed. He'll stay permanently. You're sealed until the day of redemption, Peter says. So he's not going to leave. And when that happened, he also placed you into the body of Jesus Christ. We learn about that from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, and I believe it is uh, verse 13. <clears throat> yeah, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. We all are. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, and whether we be bond or free. In the Old Testament, it was no mystery that God would uh, redeem the Gentiles, and that God would reach the Gentiles. That was no surprise. The mystery was is that there would be a body of Christ where Jew and Gentiles would be one. And that happened on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out. He placed the believers into the body of Jesus Christ. And so he says that we're all baptized, whether we're Jews or Gentiles, bond or free, have been all made to drink into one spirit, capital S, so they're praying together, and now they're filled, with, which is something different than the baptism with the Holy Spirit. The filling is when the Holy Spirit takes control. To be filled with the Spirit simply means to be walking in obedience, allowing the Holy Spirit to control your life. But you know, uh, we can't be filled with the Holy Spirit if we're filled with a bunch of the world's garbage. Um, people who fill themselves up with junk food, they're not hungry for the good stuff. If you go out and you're eating McDonald's 
French fries all the time, as good as what those things taste, they must put something in those things that you just can't stop eating them. Something addictive, an addictive chemical in those things. I don't know what it is. You eat those or you eat a Burger King Whopper, and then you come home to a good family meal with good vegetables and and starches and proteins and fruit and all of a sudden you're not very hungry for that good home-cooked meal because you're filled with junk food maybe you ate a box of swiss rolls little debbie swiss rolls on the way home from work or something and you're filled up with junk food and you don't have an appetite for the good stuff for healthy food I think a lot of times the reason why Christians don't want to be filled with the Holy Spirit is because they're filled with a bunch of the world's junk food and the world's garbage. You need to be emptied out. Say, Lord, empty me. Empty me so that I can be filled with the Holy Ghost. To do that, we see it happened as a result of a a prayer meeting. And the Word of God... So they were filled with the Holy Ghost. It was evident with these great signs. The place was literally shaken. Literally shaken. And what what happened as a result? Well, they went out and they spake the word of God with boldness. Where did their boldness come from? It came from their prayer. It came from the Holy Spirit's filling. It came from the fellowship of believers. Verse 32, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. Now, this was Christian charity in action, and it did not abolish the right of personal property. It's, it's passages uh, like this one here and the one that we had gone through already uh, where uh, Karl Marx got his communism from. Uh, but this is not teaching <laughs> communism. In communism, uh, you don't have any personal property. Your rights are taken away, and it's compulsory. It's not voluntary. It's compulsory. And in communism, the people at the top are fat and happy, but the people at the bottom are living lean, and uh, it ends in abuse of power and ends in failure. Always does. When the pilgrims came over to this country, uh, they tried communism. Some of them did. In, In one of the colonies, they tried communism, and you know what? It failed. They expected everybody to do their part and share everything equally. And what they ended up having was some men who wouldn't work and were abusing the system. Communism never works, and it always ends in an abuse of power. This isn't communism, but they had all things common. And so they had a community of goods that you entered into voluntarily, and they did that to eliminate the need among them and we think there's several reasons for that need but let's uh, go ahead and get into it Uh, in verse 33 and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus 
And great grace was upon them all. So the apostles are preaching, and they're preaching the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And the great grace of God was upon them all. God's uh, unmerited favor, that's grace. But grace is also God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is whatever God has to endue us with. And uh, whether it's power for service or... uh, giving us insight into the scriptures, blessing our ministry, encouraging us, giving us grace to make it through incredible trials. Paul's life proved that the grace of God was sufficient to bring you through anything, sickness, uh, loneliness, starvation, or having an abundance and still living for the Lord and not letting it spoil you, Uh, persecution, uh, great trials, physical weakness, and just being tired and worn out. And Paul said the grace of God is sufficient. Being under severe trials and not knowing why it was happening and asking the Lord to take it away three times, but the Lord didn't take that thorn in the flesh away from him. And still being able to go on to serve the Lord with grace. Great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. So it was the result of this grace of God that caused them to be so charitable toward one another. And uh, they wanted for nothing. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the price of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite. Notice that Joseph... He has that surname of Barnabas. He was a Levite. Now what happens when an Old Testament Levite priest gets saved in the New Testament? You see, the New Testament's now in effect with the death of the testator, the death of Jesus Christ. Christ is the end of the law. The law and the prophets were until John. So we're in a different dispensation. We're in the church age. Someone has said it's the age of grace, but I believe God's grace was necessary for all of his dealings with mankind. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's just grace. The grace of God. Why did God allow Noah and his family to be saved and preserved from the judgment upon the earth and to restart the human race, well, it was because of the promise in Acts, or uh, excuse me, Genesis 3.15, the prologue amina, the first promise of the Redeemer. Uh, but it's the age of grace. Certainly God's grace is on display like never before uh, in the church age. But... Uh, What happened to this priest that got saved? Did he become a priest over the church? Well, to be sure, they're still coming out of their Jewish roots. And there's going to be a a real separation. But right now, they don't understand all the distinctions. They're coming along in their understanding. But we know this, that this Levite, when he got saved, he wasn't a priest over the believers. Because we're all priests Peter said, every believer is a priest. That's one of the distinctives 
of the Baptist faith that um, I believe in very strongly and hold to because it's what the Bible teaches. It's the priesthood of every believer. Every believer is a saint. We're not waiting to be canonized as a saint to see what our life looks like after our death. No, we're saints now in this lifetime and we're priests unto God. And so he, he doesn't become a priest and wear robes and make a sacrifice for the church or anything like that. No, he, he just becomes just like any other believer. And he had land. He sold it. Uh, and someone said that how could a priest have land when they're not supposed to own land? He likely owned land in Cyprus, in the country of Cyprus, which was outside of that uh, Jewish land there. But uh, he, he owned land there, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet to take care of the needs. Probably because they believed that the Lord was coming back just any day. That's what Jesus had preached before this generation has passed away. Before you've gone over Jerusalem, uh, the Son of Man will return. And um, they believed that just any day, any day now, he's going to come back, so... Why work? And uh, that may be, I think that's the reason, uh, but it may be also that because there was so many people that, there were so many people that came into Jerusalem for Pentecost and now have been staying over, uh, that they have great needs, so they're taking care of their needs. The church is just growing in that temple area on Solomon's porch. Every day the gathering is getting greater and greater on Solomon's porch. The church is meeting every day. Boy, what would happen to the Sunday morning Christians, huh? So much for Sunday morning Christianity, which is not enough to really sustain anyone who's trying to live for the Lord. Fight against sin and uh, separate themselves from the unclean things in this world. Reach others for Jesus Christ. Uh, you're, you're not going to be able to do it these days. Sunday morning Christianity. Christianity. Uh, Christianity is not in a block of time one day a week. Christianity is 24-7, 365 days a year. Well, they met every day, and they, they just, it was just uh, the snowball effect and the excitement. Every day they'd meet on Solomon's porch, and just the numbers were just growing and growing and growing. They'd bring friends who weren't saved. Come and hear the apostles. Hear them preach. And people coming and hearing the preaching and being saved and then remaining with the believers and learning about baptism and being baptized upon their profession of faith and growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. A great exciting time and there, was, there were great needs to take care of everyone. Not only that, but you can imagine a person being saved and those who weren't afraid of man but would openly profess Jesus Christ, we learn that they're kicked out of the synagogues. They probably lost their jobs, a lot of them. They probably lost their inheritance or were disinherited or written out of trusts. And you can just imagine. They might have been... Might have been uh, well, certainly it was coming that there was going to be persecution, Christians killed, widows left desolate. But I believe it's because they, they thought the Lord was just coming back any time now, and so all we're supposed to do is just preach the gospel and try to get as many people to become believers as possible. Regardless, chapter 5, verse 1, but a certain man 
named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. Now, here's a case of just two people. Two people are singled out and brought right to the front of all the action. And the Holy Spirit gives them a lot of attention because God is going to make an example out of these two. They're they're selling their uh, possessions and bringing the money to the apostles but uh, they weren't being honest about it. Ananias and his wife Sapphira, when they sold their possessions, they kept back a part of the price. His wife was in on it. She was privy to it. Now, privy, there is actually a, that's an archaic word. It means to do something privately or in secret. And she was uh, in on this thing with her husband, so they brought a certain part of their possessions what they made from the selling of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But they were being dishonest. They were making a big show, big pious show, saying, oh, we're just as giving as Barnabas or anybody else who came in there. And uh, we're giving, you know, just selflessly, and we, we want to give and make a big show. And... Uh, Peter said to Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart? You see, he wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with Satan. Why has Satan filled your heart? Satan controlled his thinking and his actions. He was under the, Holy, he was under the uh, control of Satan to lie to the Holy Ghost. And to keep back part of the price of the land. Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, you see, he still has personal property rights. Was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Meaning that he could have just come in there and said, we sold our land and we want to give a part of the money that we got from the selling of our possessions. We want to give a part to the the church here and to meet the needs of others. They, they didn't have to give it all. The problem was they lied about it. And they conceived this thing in their heart. And they lied not to men, but unto God, Peter said. And, and today we think a, a lie is not a big deal. It's not a big deal for politicians to promise to do a bunch of stuff. And then uh, they're just lying left and right. They don't do what they said they were going to do. And we just play the game. We don't think it's a big deal at all. We'll, we'll re-elect them. <laughs> and, uh, but no, lying is a big deal before God. So what happens? What's his punishment? And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. Gave up the ghost is just a euphemism for died. He, his body expired. His soul was separated from his body. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, evidently uh, wound up his his robes or his garments, picked him up by his own clothing, and carried him out and buried him. (laughs) God's not playing around. God made an example out of this dishonest man Because the Lord is holy and he wants his church to be pure. So this is a purging from within the church. 
is the way that uh, Charles Ryrie outlined this chapter. It's a purging from within. Because this caused other people to get scared and to think twice about joining with this church. If they were just kind of uh, double-minded and uh, half-hearted, not really willing to uh, quit their sin. Verse 7, And it was about the space of three hours when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. (laughs) So here comes Sapphira. Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Here's her chance to be honest. Yea, for so much. And she lied. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? You tempted the Spirit of the Lord. You're wanting to see how far you can go. You want to see how much sin you can get away with. You think you can just sin with an impunity. Presume upon the goodness of God. A lot of times, God lets people get away with a whole lot. But listen, as somebody has said, you cannot sin and get away with it. You, if you sin, you will be punished. If you sin, you will be punished. And if you're not punished, chastised by God, it's because you're a bastard and not really born of the Spirit, and not really a child of God. But everyone that uh, is a child of God will be chastened, disciplined, whipped by God. We have a saying around here, being in Appalachia, God will take you out to the woodshed. God will take you out behind the barn and wear you out. And so she's tempting the Spirit of the Lord, Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. These young men are going to come get you here in a minute, and they're going to carry you out and put you underneath the dirt. And then she fell down, verse 10, straightway at his feet. Immediately, just like that, God dropped her. You know, uh... That's a, that's a flair for drama. That's making an example out of them. I'll tell you what, what a church meeting. If we had church meetings like this today, and if there were apostles, I'll tell you, we, we wouldn't have very many left in our pews or in the rows of chairs. It'd thin out the attendance, and it'd thin out it thin out the membership list of those that are living and active members. So she yielded up the ghost. She expired. And the young men came in, found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. There was great fear. There was great fear. So much so, we're going to stop there, but that no one else would join themselves with them. In verse 13, 
there were people who were sitting on the fence at this time. They believed, but they wouldn't make their profession public because they were afraid of the Jews. They were afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue. Uh, and there were people who were secret believers, like Joseph of Arimathea, who came and craved the body of Jesus and got the permission from Pilate to take down the body of Jesus and put him into his garden tomb. And also Nicodemus that came to Jesus by night. Um, we believe that he, was, uh, he helped out also with that and became a believer. There were secret, undercover, <laughs> top secret closet Christians. And there were, there were those that just wouldn't come out. But everyone magnified them. Everyone knew it was of God. And that's what scared the leaders in Jerusalem. That's what scared them. That's the reason why at first they didn't take and lay their hands on these apostles. Because uh, they knew that the people were with them. And they knew that it would cause an uproar and, and cause a riot. Well, we'll go ahead and stop there. Great fear came upon all the church. Oh, that we would have something like that in our churches today. A holy fear. A great fear that we're dealing not with a preacher. We're dealing not with just other Christians. We're, we're not just dealing with a denomination or something like that. We're dealing with God himself. And he's the one that we have to answer to. This is also another Baptist distinctive, individual soul liberty. You're individually responsible before the Lord, and I am too. Every man will give an account of himself to God. Well, let's go ahead and stop there. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd make this a blessing, and God help us. God have mercy upon us. Lord, we claim the blood of Jesus Christ. God, I thank you that we cannot be punished for our sins in the sense of going to hell and paying for them. That if we're saved, that, Lord, your justice was satisfied at the cross. But when it comes to our fellowship and our life for you here, that you absolutely will deal with us as children. And, Father, I'm so thankful that a lot of times, uh, a lot of times, Lord, you're you're very, very, very patient with us. Uh, but Lord, um, there comes a time where you do chasten us and you do it for our good and so that we can glorify you and uh, live in a way that makes you look good and honors you. So I pray, Lord, you'd help us to do that. Help us to live godly in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.